All right, we are rolling on another episode of Modern Guilt. Thank you for listening. It is 7.20 a.m. Brisbane time, 9 a.m. New Zealand. What is the time in Louisville, Kentucky, Mike? Five o'clock. 5 p.m. It looks like a beautiful afternoon there as well, i got to say, looking out your window. It is. So uh, you might hear the beautiful southern accent of our special guest, Mike (laughs) McCaskill, who we've had the pleasure to be joined by today. We have been monitoring a new funky little stock, which has uh, got us excited as of late. And uh, Mike has been extremely vocal on Twitter. So we we came across Mike's Mike's posts, his, his content, his analysis, um, and we think it's top flight. So we reached out and asked him if he'd like to join us. Um, and we were lucky enough to have him say, yes, he would, in fact, like to join us. So before we get into a deep dive, I also just want to apologize because I found myself in hospital last week, so we didn't do an episode. This was meant to be recorded last week, so we've had to cancel. So Mike, for a little bit of context, Damon and I normally try and put out free weekly episodes, um, but we've found ourselves a little bit slack over the last, (laughs) I'd say, four to six weeks. So maybe people are starting to lose faith, but I hope not. Um, Uh, I love it. Yeah, dear listeners, Um, stay with us. We're just uh, hitting some bumps in the road. So when when we found your profile, Mike, I read all about you in the Ringer article, which had me pretty much on the edge of my seat the entire time, uh, giving a loose overview of your uh, entry into the markets since the ni- late 90s? Is that right? Pretty much, yeah. Right right at the end of the tech bubble is when I started uh, finding my way. All right. Okay. Wow. That's a pretty wild time to get involved. So did you get in started right like around the peak? Yeah, actually, um, I, I had um, 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 someone I worked with that was really involved in the market. Um, obviously, everyone was making money. It was so easy. Um, I finally jumped in. I think it was late 2000 or maybe early 2001. Um, all the stocks that I bought were, were you know, very small to mid-cap, let's say, um, you know, tech-type companies. And, at the, of course, at the end, they were all just falling from the sky. Most of what I bought was in the, say, 5 to $10 range, and they all dropped down to, like, five cents, 10 cents, 25 cents, which (laughs) was fun. I mean, it wasn't an epic amount of money that I put in at that time, but it got me very interested in the, in the penny market because those stocks became penny stocks and I started to watch them jump around. And that's kind of where, you know, where I was led to investing, um, you know, shortly after, because I loved seeing those gains and, you know, from five, 10, 25 cents, that was much more fun than watching a 10 or $20 stock. So my early investment, you know, started with NASDAQ companies, let's say, but then quickly dove down into penny stocks and using social media, um, you know, to find those penny stocks and make those trades. So it was, it was fun. As I described my trading career, it, it's been a journey and it, it, you know, it's, it's pretty well rounded. I've kind of traded everything <laughs> at yeah. some point or yeah. another. So can I just ask, um sorry damon but um can i just ask like what sort of uh social media platforms or like message boards were people discussing penny stocks on in like the early 2000s 
That must have been a dark corner of the internet. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You've got <laughs> to realize that the, the the stock market completely changed at that point in time because one, um, you young guys don't realize this, but in the late '90s, you the stocks markets traded traded in fractions. So when you'd see the ticker go by on CNBC, you'd see you know five dollars and one eighth. Um, well, I can't remember when that happened, but they changed to what we have now, which is normal, you know, decimals. And that created just a wild um, market for the, the penny stocks. And I, I don't really know how they traded before then, if they really traded in fractions or, or how it worked. But when I got involved, you know, I was seeing five, 10, one cent type stocks. And um, the, the stock, you know, chat rooms were just starting to get set up. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever seen a guy named Jonathan Lebed. He's uh, the 16, 15-year-old kid that made a million dollars and then got caught by the SEC for pumping and dumping using, <laughs> uh, using stock, you know, using message boards. But at that time, that was unheard of. People didn't quite understand. And I, I, I had just started watching that kind of stuff because that's how people found, you know, trades. Um, and it still mm -hmm. do. People are, you know, real big about talking about Reddit right now. I mean, that's the medium, you know, social media, you know, now that that's how you really find trades. And that's what's giving, you know, a small investor a little bit more of, um, you know, a better way to trade because originally, you know, you'd get advice from your broker or there were emails, you know, uh, you know, emails were sent out or mailed, you know, things were mailed to you back in the golden age or whenever it was. But now you're seeing, you know, where you can find things a lot easier. Well, when that first began, that was, you know, small time chat rooms um, that's, that, that really caught on real quick. Um, and a lot of people use those obviously for, for bad reasons. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen some of, I've seen plenty of that. Um, but it, it, you know, what it's morphed into now with Twitter, um, you know, and, and Reddit, uh, which I don't, I don't really use Reddit, but, um, you know, the social media platforms now, I mean, it's awesome. It's, you know, you find someone that, you, you know, you feel like you can kind of trust or you've followed and, and they've earned your trust. Um, and, you know, and they find a good stock, they post about it, you know, and, and it's kind of the circle that you want to get into. And that's what's helped me be successful generally is, you know, followed a good amount of people and I've developed friendships, you know, through those circles and you just kind of know people. I mean, you know, some people are scum and, you know, are promoting <laughs> stocks. I mean, there's all kinds out there. And but, you know, if you do it long enough, you figure out, you know, who to watch and who mm. to get, you know, maybe some tips from or trust, you know, advice and things like that. So that, that's kind of the way it works. That's really interesting, because hey? I felt like that was the journey of my whole GME thing was sort of finding. Mm -hmm. We originally found Rod uh, and we brought yeah. him on and did an episode with him. And then my exit was actually timed around seeing like Jordan Belfort uh, start <laughs> pumping the stock. And I was like, uh, I was chatting to Hayden. I was like, ah, buddy, we're going to get out of here. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, um, Jordan, so I'm on the Discovery Channel's um, little documentary. Now, I had no idea it had Jordan Belfort in it or any involvement whatsoever. I have this um, life rights deal that, that I still haven't technically signed, but I wasn't. I'm not really supposed to do, you know, a lot of promotional work or, you know, anything like that. Unscripted, unscripted work is what they call it. Um, and it was limited. So I thought, 
you know, I had to send it in and say, hey, I'm going to do this Discovery Channel thing. I really didn't research it. They didn't say too much. I just thought, oh, it's the Discovery Channel. It should be on the up and up. And then, then when they send me this stuff, it says Jordan Belfer on it. And I'm like, guys, you know, that's not the kind of publicity I need. Because back then I used to, tra- I mean, believe me, I probably traded stocks that, that Jordan was was pumping and dumping. So I was like, I don't know if that's uh, that's what I need to be involved in. But I ended up doing it. It was fine. It was a very small piece. They just wanted me to say, hey, I made a whole bunch of money. And that's really mm. all they wanted me for. They didn't really need my yeah. opinion. So it, but it wasn't was really Discovery was Discovery doing a GameStop doco? Yeah, they did. Um, ah, it's, okay. it's on Discovery Plus. I think it only aired in England or something like that. They sent it to yeah, me, right. so I got to watch it. I'm sure it'll make the rounds at some point. I, I guess it's on Discovery Plus, which you have to, you know, have a membership to. And I, I doubt I'm, I don't know too many people that have that, mm. but. Um, I did that, and then I did, I did another one that I think will be really interesting, and it's 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 on a larger scale, and it's it's kind of like a two hour documentary, and and that one should be very impressive, and it's going to be called The Big Squeeze, and a gentleman named Samuel Black came and shot me for three days, um, and that one's pretty awesome, and I haven't put that out publicly or any, anywhere, but um, that one that one should be really good. He's he's interviewed guys like Andrew Left. And everyone for it, so it should be real good. And he's he's saying that I might kind of be the centerpiece of it. So I'm like, oh, Ooh, all, right. all right. So we'll right. see how that goes. Mike's oh. big come up. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna have an IMDb profile soon, man. <laughs> uh, hopefully not. I'm, I should fly under the radar. I bet. So, did you have any crossover with Stratton Oakmont um, back when you were playing the penny stocks? Because they they were probably pretty prominent around that time, right? Well, like I said, more than likely so. I mean, there have been some epic scams that have ran through the penny market. And uh, like I said, I mentioned um, Jonathan Labed was a great one. I mean, he was a kid that literally figured out to to promote, you know, stocks on chat rooms and pump them and pump them and dump them. And the kid made, you know, like a million dollars and the SEC fined him and he only had to pay $100,000. So if that's not a victory lap, he did after that. (laughs) It's a great little story. And he's still... Like does some kind of promotional stuff. Not that I knew anything about Jonathan, you know, Lebed, but that when you're talking about the early days of of message rooms, you know, and message boards, because they were really more of like a message board. I'd say almost back then they weren't the social media that that we have today. So um, like MSN chat, because that's what we're familiar um, with. Have you ever heard of Raging Bull? Raging Bull is kind of the one. Now I can tell on your face. <laughs> Raging Bull was the one that really came and brought like all the message boards together. And Raging Bull was like a platform where um, <clears throat> it's not that unsimilar from what I trade on now, which is iHub, where you kind of set up a board and it's usually a stock specific board or maybe it's like someone's room, you know, like uh, um hot dogs room or whatever. You 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 know, it's easier to find things. Like the problem with Twitter is, you know, everybody uses dollar sign, whatever, but there's no archive. I mean, I shouldn't say there's no archive, but there's no good way to search that database. So what I always liked and why I still post on Investors Hub to this day is because, you know, there's stock specific boards or, you know, say you've got a group of guys that you trade with, like I trade on this board called the Magic Board. But if you have a a paid membership, which doesn't cost that much, you can easily search and you can find things, you know, you can go back real easy and, and find, you know, specific years, months or keywords. And that's one option that like Twitter, you know, is really missing. And, you know, I, 
Reddit as well. I, I can't navigate Reddit uh, at all. I have no idea how to find anything. And I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm an old timer. <laughs> but if you can't yeah. find things, I don't know how useful, you know, they are. And then recently too, like with Reddit, you know, they, they made it hard to even join. Like I had, I guess I had an account, but I've never posted. Well, I posted something on GameStop and it got deleted. And I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, you know, I, you, you might, you know, I, I don't know. It just, I was like, all right, I, I'd never liked this place and uh, continue to disapprove of it. <laughs> so, well, um, nah, fair enough. you're not, you're not missing out on a, no. a huge amount there on Reddit, man. I, yeah. I think you seem to have your, your ducks pretty well in a row. I'm sure you'll be able to just carry on and avoid that. Um, yes, yes. Exactly. So how long were you uh, playing the OTC markets? Because when I was reading the Ringer article, it sounded mm-hmm. like you were in them for a bit and then you had a couple really close big wins. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Did- that's, that's where, you know, the, the, the Ringer article is, is, you know, an easier to read version of, you know, it's kind of like making a movie, I guess. It, it yeah. left out some things. I mean, the natural flow of things was, was probably more like, um, you know, I, I got started in, I think late 2000, 2001, quickly lost my butt. You know, those those investments turned into penny stocks. That's when I started investing in penny stocks. And I probably did that until uh, the financial crisis, uh, 2008. So from that point in time, you know, I, I was pretty much only probably trading penny stocks. I mean, for the most part. Um, and had several big hits early on with some notorious scam stocks that, you know, I had no idea. I was new to it. Um, but it was a, it was one of the golden ages of the penny market. There was a lot of liquidity that needed uh, places to go once once the tech boom or bubble kind of burst. Um, you know, it was there were a lot of good years from say 2003 to 2007. Um, it wasn't that hard to trade those penny stocks. Um, in 2007, um, the financial crisis started to really affect the market. Long before you know you had a bank failure or anything like that you saw liquidity being pulled out of penny markets in a major way and no one really knew it. And, you know, guys that traded didn't really talk about it too much, at least not the big guys. They were all like, oh yeah, no, nothing's wrong. Da, 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 da. But I mean, it was very hard to make money. I, I went full-time trading in 2006. I quit my jobs and uh, cause it, you know, I thought I could do it. I literally sold my car. I had a BMW. It was paid off from trading pennies and I'm like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go full time. And I had a really great 2006. Start of 2007 was fine. But once about mid-year 2007, it was a completely different game. Um, when the banks started to fail, I really started looking at them and trying to figure out what had happened and what was going to happen. And that led me to start trading options on, you know, on a lot of those banks is, is really what got me started trading, trading big boards. And uh, the options are awesome during a volatile time. Uh, it's not that hard to make money uh, on them, I would say, just because I didn't even know what I was doing. And there were just some wild swings. So I was always looking for like volatility concerning, you know, options plays. Um, and I really did that from probably 2007, 2008 to about 2016 and, and pretty much just lost my ass. Uh, for the most part. So it, 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 you know, I supported myself through about 2008, 2009, and then I had to start getting jobs. So um, till about 2016, something happened, uh, you know, maybe one of my buddies started trading again from the old days, 
and I started looking at penny stocks again, and they kind of got me started again. Believe it or not, penny stocks are a lot simpler than, say, options. <laughs> and, you know, I'll, I've always had good success, you know, with pennies just because I, I kind of know how they work. And, you know, you can, you know, you know, if somebody's the biggest problem with pennies is dilution. It's not that hard to see dilution. If you're an experienced trader, that's kind of what you're looking out for. So, you know, if you see somebody dumping, got, you know, an unbelievable amount of shares into the market, you know, it's pretty clear you don't want to be in that stock. Um, but so there were just some little buildups, you know, starting in 2016, 2017. And then I came into a stock called, uh, the symbol was S-O-L-I, which was a crazy, super cheap shell company, well under a penny. Uh, a guy I used to trade with, you know, years ago, sent me a tip, said, hey, just load it up on it. I should take a look at it. Actually liked it. I started loading up at it at a penny. It made this run to $1.30. You know, I almost made a million dollars off of that run. And then I watched it completely crash and melt down. Um, but all that, you know, got me started back, you know, heavily into the market. And it's not that I ever left the market. It's just I wasn't making any money. And it's amazing because those were all good years for the stock market. But I was, you know, I wasn't a believer in the market. And um, there's a guy named David Tepper that they have on CNBC a lot. He's the owner of the Carolina Panthers. But yeah, I never fully understand until understood until recently that the liquidity that's being pumped into the market is just not going to let the market fail. And I think that they've really figured this out. Now, how the end game ends here with you know what they are doing in the market is anyone's guess, and my guess it would be terribly bad. But when you have the whole world dumping liquidity in and, and printing money like they are. The market's just not going to go down, and it took me until <laughs> until about 2020 to finally come to a full grasp of all right, dumbass, stop trying to short the market and look for the next <laughs> thing that's going to fail. It, it's because it was a it was a losing game, and a lot of the guys I trade with, you know, traded that way, and we all we like I said, we lived through 2008 and 2009 and saw it, and you know the underlying. Things that that caused you know those problems in two thousand eight two thousand nine are still there, but you know it, I think it was a good thing that we had um, a, a Republican in office when COVID hit because it gave the full steam ahead on let's just dump as much liquidity into the market as humanly possible, and it doesn't matter that it was Trump or it's Obama or it's Biden, it's really that. It was free reign because you had the Republicans in control. And if they're dumping money, then it's okay. Now, you know, if you have the Democrats dumping money, then they want to say, oh, wait, 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 that's that's insane. But I think it really helped the market in particular. Um, like I said, in the long run, I don't know if it's going to be good for the market, but it prevented a recession. And it's pretty interesting to see that. And like I said, when you have the whole world kind of doing that same thing, it's like, what's what's going to go wrong? You know, there are flashes of... of you know, crashes in the market, but they, they don't last. So there's no point in trying to play them or time them. Or if you do, you better be in and out fast. Whereas bets to the upside, you know, it's just a much easier game. So I kind of got a, a good grasp on that, you know, in the last year or two where it's like, look, focus on, you know, longer term plays that you think are more undervalued. Um, and that's kind of how I ended up stumbling, you know, into GameStop. We've, uh, talked a fair bit about this broader narrative surrounding GameStop and how that played out for for ourselves and many others. So mm -hmm. I think we won't do a, a deep dive on that right now, but we'll, um, we'll link 
the uh, the Ringer article in our show notes so that listeners can go and um, get an idea of um, how how GameStop went for you and. Mm-hmm. Hint, spoiler alert, it went really well for Mike, which is how he finds himself here. Um, so the next part in your story, to me, appears to be you entering this uh, trade with Humanogen, um, stock ticker mm-hmm. H-G-E-N or H-Gen. So do you want to give us your brief sort of overview of H-Gen and how you see this um this this trade positioned right now sure um well um let's just say biotech is the worst sector to try to successfully trade stocks i I used to avoid it like the plague okay because um unless you're a doctor unless you've studied medicine or you put a hell of a lot of effort into it it's very hard to grasp um you know biotech period you know drugs and how they work and and what the fda is going to do uh, like I said, I always stayed away to, uh, far away from it, really. Um, you see these huge gains, but good luck trying to catch that one out of the 100 mm-hmm. that does that. Um, late, uh, I think it was April last year, I had a, a friend that I trade with. His name's Roy, and he sent me two um, biotechs. And he's like, man, you've got to get on these. You know, all the all the other COVID plays are really going. These haven't gone that much yet. La-di-da, one of them was HGen. And... Um, I, I looked at it and he, you know, I think I had some cash at that time. So I started to buy it and the stock at that time, this was pre reverse split. Um, it was, it was like 80 to 90 cents. And I remember hitting it and I wanted to get 25,000 shares. By the time I was at lunch, I had bought those 25,000 shares and the stock had run while I'm buying them, um, just on me buying it up to a dollar and a quarter or $1.30. And I was like, what, this is amazing. This thing is super thin for a dollar stock. And as soon as I stopped buying it, it tanked right back down. I mean, by the end of the day, almost right back on my head, I ended up dumping my shares. And uh, so it, it was uh, it was interesting, but I put it on the back burner because I'm like, man, if these guys ever get news, this thing is thin as can be. So, you know, I did more research on it and I really liked what I saw. The basic story of it is, you know, it's an anti-inflammation drug and it, it affects, you know, the condition known as cytokine storm, which is probably the base of almost everything that kills you out there. I mean, from cancer to a lot of different things. So while it's not a miracle drug for all these things, it is the basis of, um, you know, what causes death and, and the reactions in a lot of treatments or a lot of diseases. So it really caught my eye and uh, I liked how thin it was and I liked management um, and everything just, it kept it on my radar and um, I, I, I kept it up close and it probably wasn't, you know, just a few weeks later, all of a sudden it kind of started to move and I jumped back in and it was the right timing because then came news, um, you know, with, with, with COVID and, and, and more stuff like that that really started to, to, to make it move. And it's been one of these ones that you love and you hate. Um, I've said I originally started buying it near a dollar. I think it ran up to like five or six in the in the summer. I was sitting on cloud nine. I you know I was way up, and um, of course then they've had to raise a lot of capital. They did a reverse split, so uh, the reverse split I think was five for one or one for five, however you want to say it. Um, so the reality is it hasn't really moved all that much, but the potential 
is just bubbling like a volcano for this. And the news finally is just getting better and better and better. And it has a very strange, like a weight on it where somebody is sitting on this stock and just will not let it, you know, move. And because I think it's extremely undervalued with, um, I mean, it's about a 1 billion uh, market cap here. And they're going to get a, a, an emergency use authorization and they're probably going to land a massive BARDA contract. And, you know, this isn't like an old penny stock kind of, you know, pump and dump here. This is, you know, there's like seven analysts that are covering it that are all saying very similar things, you know, that if they get an EUA approval, basically BARDA is going to stockpile 100,000 doses of this drug and they're going to give them anywhere from 5,000 to maybe 10,000 a dose. And you're talking about a company with a billion market cap that could instantly get a BARDA contract that might be, you know, half a billion or even up to a billion. And that's just open. That's just the openers. So while <clears throat> it's kind of been lumped into um, the whole biotech sector, uh, it has uh, just recently the XBI, which is, you know, pretty large biotech uh, ETF, um, the uh, spider ETF, which everybody kind of follows. Uh, we have it up because it really tracks really in sync with XBI. Um, th they keep adding shares to it. And XBI now has 3.28 million shares of this tiny biotech, which is bizarre. And um, so I, biotech has really crashed over the last couple months. I think part of it, you know, was, oh, COVID's going to be this big thing, you know, for stocks for, for years to come. And I think that trade's kind of pulling off now. So that's kind of hurt it. But the potential, especially around the world, and when you're talking about stockpiling in the U.S. or just for use in the U.S., I mean, we still have tons of people that are dying from this. COVID's not going away. It's, you know, the popular saying is that it's endemic. It's not really a pandemic. It could be like the flu and not go away. And, and you've got to have some kind of therapeutics to take care of this. And our therapeutics now in the United States, are they suck. Um, remdesivir mm. doesn't really work. And it only works really, you know, very early on if there's, you know, there's just a very small margin of error <laughs> for benefit for for remdesivir and then after that they pump you full of steroids which you know that makes your immune system compromised and there's all kinds of side effects from dumping steroids in people and you have to give it to people right at the right time or it really causes even more problems so we don't have a good yeah. therapeutic here at all and i think you know Lindsay Lamob and, and humanogen man they are on the right track with um covid but you know, the real story is is it's going to be used, you know, in CAR-T therapy, which is where the big money, you know, is probably going to come. If someone buys out the company, it will be because they want, you know, that drug used as a CAR-T therapy. So, I mean, there's just a lot of implications. And I think there's more down the road. Like I said, this inflammation, um, you know, that it can take care of and handle with the cytokine storm. And there's just a lot of drugs that, you know, that... It could it could be put on alongside like every CAR T drug out there. The number one side effect is cytokine storm. So, um, you know, CAR T therapy is kind of your big push for cancer. You know, right now, I mean, everyone thinks that if there's going to be some type of a cure, let's say, um, it'll come from CAR T. CAR T treatments are four hundred, five hundred, a million dollars a dose. So if you have just a bolt on with um, you know, Lenzilamob for 10,000, 
you know, that's a pretty minimal bolt-on, you know, to give alongside these CAR-T drugs that makes them not only safer, but um, somehow it actually um, makes them, you know, work better, period. So, uh, so I, I just, I'm amazed, I'm amazed by it. And I have been for about a year and, you know, I haven't really made killer money on it. Let's say yet it's been pretty minimal because they've had to raise capital and do all those things up to the NASDAQ. But I feel like it's right here on the cusp and man, 20 bucks, uh, sub 20, you know, I think it's a great looking investment myself. I've got a massive position that I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> So it's <laughs> I've been following a notice when you're posting on Twitter the other day. Uh, you could see your buy order. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very. Yeah. It's. <laughs> yeah. So it was it's, nice um, to see that move. You know, I'm in a different uh, world now from where I've ever been as far as, you know, what I can buy. And the thing is, I'm trying not to treat my trading account that differently because, you know, it's starting to work now. Um, and you know, from my GameStop gains, um, you know, I've only, I've been adding on, um, you know, doing very well. And actually most of my, my gains here lately, um, have been trading GameStop. And, uh, so, um, you know, I probably had seven trades just as I, as I, you know, what I put on Twitter is true. I mean, you buy the dip and you sell the rip and, you know, GameStop's going into this, you know, perfect little wedge thing, you know, you buy it down here at the bottom and you sell it at the top. And I mean, I love GameStop. I'd like to sit on it as a long for, you know, for years to come. And I, and I probably will, but I have a, you know, a trading portion of it that uh, has, uh, it's just been unbelievable. So that's done really well. And um, really those profits, uh, you know, I, 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 I just keep pouring them into Humanogen. Yeah. Um, like last year, it was funny, the guys that traded with me, you know, it was GameStop and Humanogen and a lot of the times we'd be like, okay, let's I think GameStop's going to go here. Let's get heavier in GameStop. And then honestly, the opposite would generally happen. Then we'd have to go run back in and buy Humanage and up higher and GameStop lower, whatever happened. But it was always one or the other. And what was real weird is those two tracked one another for the longest time when they were in the teens. Um, you know, it was always the joke is like, all right, which one's going to, you know, outpace the other today? And then they would come back together. And then obviously GameStop took off like a bat out of hell. And it's like, well, when when are they going to catch up? And uh, that's kind of the running joke. Is yeah, but yeah, so it's you're, very possible. You're you've been so I so you're still in GME, but also mm-hmm. your two plays were Humanogen and GME. Is, am I? Oh yeah, hearing that right? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah. There, I can't. Well, everything. I mean, there's always some plays. There's plays that you you love and you marry. Let's put it that way. And then there's plays that you date. You know, and you trade. <laughs> and um and that's that's the best way you really you always want to date them you don't want to marry them uh kids that's what yeah. that's the that's what you want to do it's never a mistake it's hardly ever a mistake yeah. and um you know gamestop was a painful trade for the longest time and and if i had a lot of money you know a year and a half ago when i started messing with gamestop it, it may not have been i, I might have been had a you know i might have had 500,000 shares at $4 and it would have been unbelievable but I was always trying to, you know, hit the home run with GameStop and I was just buying a lot of options and those options would always end up worthless. And I mean, you know, the way that I would play options, it didn't really matter if the stock went from five to six dollars or five to seven dollars. You know, that wasn't the kind of move that I was trying to hit, you know, to try to make the the grand slam. I needed, you know, I needed the real squeeze and, you know, I was 
t- tweeting, you know, hashtag Moas out on GameStop in, you know, January of 2020 before, you yeah. know, people were like, you know, be like, what the hell are you doing? And you're an idiot and, you know, all kinds of things. So I had been doing that for a long time, waiting for that big move. Now, luckily, Humanogen didn't have options. Um, and that's that's like a lifesaver for me because that's, you know, human- uh, options, you know, you lose the way that I trade them, especially. I mean, I, you just, you know, you go to zero on them so quick. Yeah. And um, so Humanogen has been a safer trade because it didn't get on the NASDAQ until later last year. And then the options are not extremely liquid. So, I mean, you're, there's no weekly options, things like that, which, you know, weekly options I call the crack because, I mean, those are the ones that, you know, oh, you think it's coming this week? Yeah, that little short buzz. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's pain. It, though, that's the painful trade. And that's what almost killed me with GameStop. Um, until, um, so other stocks that I played, let's just say, so I'd literally got, just got clobbered in November on GameStop. I really thought there was something going on with Cohen, I think. I think we were trying to time, you know, him. Uh, I think it was the the timing of him going above 10%, I think was around November. And we thought it was coming and it, it came and then the stock didn't react to it. And that, that was the notorious thing with GameStop is there were huge catalysts and then the news would come out and then they'd still, you know, shit all over it. And it, God, it made me so frustrated. And I lost, you know, it was my last, there were several times where I lost like 50 grand on a trade with GameStop. And that was... That was the last time that I lost. It was that November. And that loss put me, you know, from summer, I had this great gain on Humanogen. And um, it, I was trying to try to make that back. Humanogen was sliding down and I was losing that gain. So I took a big, you know, whiff on GameStop. And then I had a whole bunch of December calls on Humanogen and they were they were worthless. You know, they were totally negative and worth zero, literally were zero. My account was almost at nothing. It really was at nothing other than the fact that I had this shell company that somebody kept screwing around with and making it look like it was worth a penny when it was really worth like a tenth of a cent. And it made my account look like I still had 20,000 in it, which I didn't. But if you're a day trader like me, 25,000 is that that fine line of where you can be a pattern day trader and you can do what you want. And when you're underneath 25, you know, you can only make three round trip day trades a week. So luckily I'd stayed above that 25, but it was just pure paper. And then some weird move came out of nowhere on Humanogen in um, late December. I mean, the week going into those options expiring, I, I would have lost, you know, a boatload on them. Something woke it up. It ran it to 20, you know, from like eight to 22. And I was like, I got to get out. And I sold all of it. And I was sitting on a, a great pile of cash. And then Nano popped up. And, you know, this is where my run started. It was the awakening of Humanogen back to over 20. Then Nano. I had been trying to find some new plays. I was trying to get some fresh blood into my system of what to start trading. So I was doing a lot of research on Kathy Wood in late November and early December, trying to find you know maybe her next type of play or something in that sector since those stocks were doing so well. So I was looking at ArcG and all the stocks that were in there and noticed PacBio was you know their biggest investment at that time. And... All of a sudden, out of nowhere, pops up this news with uh, BioNano, and it kind of compared it to PacBio, and it's at 60 cents. So 
I kind of immediately, sometimes when you see like something that has that momentum, sometimes I just buy into it before I even fully know what it is. And that sounds really stupid, but, but not really. Um, so I start buying it. I start looking at it, researching it. And again, this is why I kind of stay away from biotechs because you can read something and it sounds great. And then, you know, some well-known guy will be like, no, dumbass, that's not what that means. And you're wrong. And you, you might end up being wrong. Well, Luckily, with BioNano, I was actually right, and it was a guy named the uh, the Wal the Walrus the Walrus Street or something like that. I bought um, after that news came out that basically said BioNano's product was comparable to PacBio, which PacBio was sitting at like a four billion market cap and, and top of ArcG. When BioNano is sitting at sixty cents worth, I don't even know what a hundred million. Um, it, it, you know, started to take off and I loaded it all the way to a dollar. Uh, then the walrus came out and I think he saw my, my, my DD that I posted. Um, and, and he literally said everything I said over that weekend, uh, prior to me loading it up uh, or after me loading it up, um, he kind of confirmed it for me and I was like, oh, that's awesome. And then it took off like a bat out of hell and it went to seven bucks on that initial move and it didn't have options at first, but I mean, I killed it from that to seven. I sold completely out of seven. It pulled back to four. Then I don't know if it jumped on the NASDAQ, but options became available and I loaded back up at four and then it made that move an even bigger move and I sold out on that. So I'm sitting there loaded with cash like I've never had before. You know, I'm over seven figures at that yeah. point. And then <laughs> the Ryan Cohen news pops up and it's like, oh, thank you, dear Lord, because... Never have I been flush with cash, and it was such a, a different feeling. Uh, I mean, I'm a grinder. You know, I've been trying to hit a home run for my whole life in the stock market. So the mentality of, you know, trying to hit a home run, I didn't need to do that anymore. So what I did was put on a more structured trade. And, you know, when Ron Cohen basically won, January 11th was that date. It was a Monday. Um, you know, I was like, that's, that's my all in kind of moment. I'm like, I'm going to put a trade on, this is going to happen one way or another, no matter how hard these idiots continue to fight it, you know, it's going to happen. This, this is it. It's, it's over, you know, because at that time we were worried about, you know, him winning, he was fighting, you know, uh, Ryan Cohen was fighting with the board or the CEO, really, I think it was with the CEO, um, about kind of taking over the company. And, you know, that white flag on January 11th was Ryan Cohen wins. So I knew that that was the all-in moment. I bought a ton of options that were further out, not too, too crazy. And then I bought a lot of stock too. How many and days then, out were you targeting on the options? I mean, every I did everything. I, I, you know, the, When I buy options, I tended to go a little nuts. But this one, I, what's funny is I bought the short-term options like I would normally do too, and I sold them on Tuesday. Had I kept those, it would have been pretty wild. But <laughs> on Tuesday, I was like, all right, you're, you're a big boy now. You don't need those. So I, yeah, I actually dumped them. And, uh, but the, the options I put on, um, the, the, the trades are actually in the Ringer article where, you know, there was, um, what I did was my first round of trades were, um, you know, that was January. So I think they were maybe like March, April, June, and July, something like that, where I bought one strike, say they were 25, 30, and 35, maybe 40. So they were, you know, a good amount of blocks on all those, giving me plenty of time along with the shares. Then, um, you know, I sent that tweet out to Kramer and Kramer really started it off. We went from 20 to 40. Um, so after that happened, 
you know, I thought, man, we are so golden here because the stock was sitting around 40 bucks and it wasn't pulling back. And I knew, I've never been so confident with a trade ever. So, you know, I knew at that time, I was like, I want more exposure to this trade. And that's when I put a crazy trade on that I, at that time, when I put it on, I didn't really think about it too much, but I'd sent, you know, David, um, the ringer, um, author, um, I'd sent him my trades. I was like, what, what, what's funny is when I got interviewed, I wasn't going to tell him how much money I made. He had seen a tweet that I'd sent to Andrew Ross Sorkin trying to get Sorkin's attention because they were bad mouthing GameStop on CNBC. So I was really wanting to get on CNBC, you know, and I kept saying, look, I made this amount of money, um, you know, just email me, talk to me, you know, you've got your narrative completely wrong. So I was furious at those guys, you know, who I watch every day, you know, bad mouth and the, the way that they were. So I was trying to get their attention and I would tweet something and then delete it. And David saw that. And so he knew all along how much money I made. <laughs> I, I told him, I was trying to keep that from him. But so I sent him my trades and I said, look, this is, this is what I had on going into, you know, after 40. And it had, you know, 750 contracts for the, I think it was the the February or the March um, f- uh, 60 calls. And that's the one that I made just in a, a large amount. And I, I didn't, <laughs> funny thing was I didn't realize how much it w- really was because I was already up so much and my other trades were just astronomical up percentage wise. But when I went back and really looked at it, because he he wanted to ask me questions about that exactly. He's like, why'd you have 750 contracts, you know, this and that? And I'm like, well, I was like, because I wanted, you know, when it was at 40 bucks, I knew it was going to go big. And I was like, I wanted more exposure and I wanted something I could sell into that move and I could keep my core position. And God, did that ever, that was such the right thing to do because those 750 contracts that I bought, when we when we finally moved, that first initial spike was up to 160. And from 140 to 150, maybe 130 to 150, somewhere in there, I unloaded all of those, the 750 contracts. And I mean, they were they were huge. And it 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 was it was massive. And then so we hit that 160, and the very next day is when it crashed down and everybody panicked. And uh, I, I wasn't panicking because I I just made a killing on exactly what I wanted to do. Now, it would have been better, obviously, I sold everything, but but that's okay. It, it worked exactly the way that, that I wanted it to work. So when it dove back down to 60, you know, the following week, then I just I doubled my, my shares. And so I had great options ready, you know, for further out that were, you know, we're talking 25 to 40 strike. So, you know, by the end of this, you know, when we get, when we got the second move up to 400, I sold pretty much everything, um, in the probably 250 to 350 range. Um, and it, um, it was crazy. And luckily it was just so big that I didn't hesitate to, to sell it all. It's like, this is, this is an insane amount of money and I'm not going to take that chance. Cause if it wasn't, you know, maybe if it was only a few hundred thousand, I would feel like I'm holding out, we're going to a thousand. But since it was so much money, it was just there was no you know other option. And what's wild is I was tracking like uh, you know deep fucking value and Keith Gill. I was tracking you know I was with him. Let's just put it that way. When I put my trades on, um, when we really started to move, you know him and I were neck and neck. I was usually like a million or two behind him, but I was there. And then yeah. when I sold, you know, in the three hundreds, of course he held, and I was like, oh man, he's up to fifty friggin' million dollars. But then it crashed. And, um, 
you know, and I'm sitting there and, and Keith is in the spotlight for all this, you know, and I'm glad because I, I didn't want to get hauled in front of Congress. Yeah, testifying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, oh, that's that's awesome. But no one knew. It's like, well, I actually made more money than, uh, than that guy. <laughs> and that was the weird thing. And nobody knew, you know, nobody knew it. Nobody knew it. And, uh, you know, now it's now he's back up. But, I mean, we're still probably, honestly, I don't know what, what he's doing now, but we're probably still neck and neck, honestly. So, Were you chatting uh, to Keith good luck, throughout the good whole luck, thing? Keith. No, but I did. I didn't chat with him throughout. Once I had had a couple private messages that I actually forgot about, um, and it was kind of cool. Um, we had talked in uh, like June or July. Once when, when Ryan really got in, then everybody was going nuts. And when my tweet with Kramer got reshared, you know, everyone that was really trading GameStop were all like patting me on the back. They're like, holy crap, you got Kramer. To, you know, because Kramer had been real negative up to that. So, um, yeah. so, but I look back and I had a couple, you know, private messages, nothing major. I mean, he know he knows who I am. I mean, that's, you know, plain and simple. And I've tried to reach out to him since then. I don't know if his account, his account's gone crazy. He's got 500,000 followers or something like that. But um, I tried to reach out to him and he didn't really respond. But yes, back in the day, now I didn't know who he was really until Ryan Cohen got involved. I don't really remember anyone talking very positive about GameStop um, up until that that time. So, I mean, kudos to him for putting that crazy trade on, you know, two years ago. Um, I would have never done that because I don't sit on anything that long term. Um, you know, I'm happy with waiting and then you got the momentum and then you put that trade on and it worked out just as well. Honestly, it worked out better. Had I waited one more day and sold my trade, you know, at 400 um, instead of, you know, the 300s that I got or whatever. I mean, it, it just crazy. You know, my trade tracked his pretty much neck, you know, along the way. Um, and I put mine on in January and he had his on, you know, years before. I mean, the narrative when I put mine on is what I wanted to see. The narrative when he put his on, I don't know what he was thinking. I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't have believed in it quite that. Well, I don't know if it's that. It wasn't that much money. He did something real smart. And what's funny is I can remember looking at those his trades and thinking, God, I'm an idiot for not trading like that. You know, um, I remember that vividly, you know, in like uh, September or November, you know, around then because he's way up and I'm just, just sitting here losing my ass. So, but I don't know. The GameStop trade was pretty wild. We weren't supposed to be talking about that, but it's too much. No, fun. no, 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 no. Okay. I had to hear it. Um, How do you cut to, the um, stress, man? That's, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like that's hearing that. I'm this, just like, you're giving me like secondhand stress. I'm just like, oh my God. It, it wasn't stressful. It's, it's very weird. I have a high tolerance for, you know, risk. Okay, I've, I've lost my ass so many times. You know, this, as the story goes, you know, I was always trying to break a million and I was, I, I've lost, you know, I've lost that million over and over. And I mean, I'm talking about from a million to zero in my trading account. So the stress, you know, I could sleep. I can tell you this, a lot of people would not have been able to sleep and, and I could sleep. And, you know, I trade, amazingly enough, I traded it really well and I continue to trade it real well. So I haven't had a, you know, super amount of stress. Now, what I do, and I am up, you know, early in the morning, but that's because I don't, I don't stay up late at night. You know, I, I fall asleep sometimes here at nine or 10, um, you know, and then I'm up at three or four in the morning just because, you know, I don't want to miss anything. And that this is kind of what I live for. I mean, trading is, 
you know, part of what I live for. So, uh, you know, I do sleep just fine. Um, you know, it's just, I, I go to bed early and then I, fuck yeah. Yeah. So and I'm up <laughs> and, I, and I'm ready now. I'm ready. Look, look, if you manage and hits, I, I, I figure I'm going to take the summer off, but, um, you know, it hasn't hit yet. So I have yeah. to keep getting up. I want you to have the life. summer off if you manage and hit. <laughs> um, I told Hayden the same thing. Speaking of humanogen hitting, um, yeah. we've got a, uh, a buffet of future catalysts by the seams of things. Yes. Um, so um, Damon and I have been obviously conducting our own DD on humanogen, comparing that against yours and plenty of others. Um, and I personally seem to think that um, an end of year price target of $100 for HGN is not unrealistic. Um, mm-hmm, absolutely. Have Have you considered uh, putting a p- putting a figure on it? Well, you know, again, since biotechnology is not my forte, what I what I do, um, and I'm in a, a private chat group on Twitter for Humanogen, um, mm-hmm. and we've got a couple doctors in there. We've got some guys, you know, the guy that got I got an really, invite to that there. <laughs> <laughs> the guy who set it up, it's his gig and he's, you know, he's very adamant yeah, no, about who he lets course. in and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, there's a couple doctors in there and then uh, a guy named It's Very Jerry used to be called Bio Jerry. And mm-hmm. man, we all like Bio Jerry. He's pretty level headed. He's had some big wins. You can go back and look at him. I think Novavax, I think he just destroyed or, or one of them. I can't remember. But I try to associate with people that I feel like, you know, know what they're talking about. Um, everyone in this chat room seems to be on that page of, look, if they get an emergency use authorization, you can't not value the company at about $5 billion. Um, you know, you're instantly going to get a bar to contract for for possibly a billion you know, you've got India, you've got Brazil, you've got several countries completely out of control. Um, you know, uh, the the EU put out that piece of news about two weeks ago that said they were going to fast track therapeutics. And lo and behold, it took about two weeks. And you see, you know, in the quarterly report, them mentioning, you know, applying for approval um, in the EU. So, um, you know, I, I think the potential is unbelievable. Now, what you have in this environment is I think they have a problem with manufacturing. If this all does come to fruition, um, you know, they're on, you know, the world's in a race to develop these vaccines. And with the United States in particular, clearly the strategy has been let's get everyone a vaccine and not really worry about anything else, which is puzzling to me. I mean, I think part of it came about because everything else has failed. Every other therapeutic has literally strung, uh, you know, swung and, and missed. And you're talking major companies. You're talking Merck. You're talking about Eli Lilly. I mean, mm-hmm. no one seems to have a good answer. Um, you know, uh, Regeneron's often mentioned. Um, yeah, it's a well, monoclonal antibody. You have to get I that swung to and miss on Regeneron when Trump went on um when Trump did his speech in front of the White House and was pumping Regeneron. I jumped on that. Uh, oh, yeah. actually, sorry, I had jumped on Regeneron prior, um, yeah. and I saw Damon linked me to Trump's um sure. uh, media address, and mm-hmm. we were like, "Oh shit, is this is this going down?" But well, anyway. It- it's already a massive, you know, Regeneron's yeah. a big company and it's already had a huge, you know, I don't even know what made it move, but, you know, you can pull up a 10 year, 15 year chart on it. And that was under a hundred. That was a humanogen, you know, uh, maybe seven, eight years ago. Um, but 
when you know, we were thinking at that time that Trump might actually take lenzilumab um, because they were talking about you know monoclonal antibody. The thing is, Trump started to decay real fast when he got COVID, and they said his oxygen levels went down. You can't take Regeneron's monoclonal antibody at that time; it's already too late. So it makes no sense that that happened. Now, obviously, he's getting probably the best care in the world, so you know he rebounded, but. Regeneron is extremely expensive and you really have to take it before you even get sick. So what the hell good is that going to do anyone anywhere? Because no one's going to take a $3,000 drug if they think they might have just got COVID. So it's it's just ridiculous that, that that's, that's an option and that we paid so much money through BARDA, you know, in the United States to, to really research that drug. It's, it's not effective. Um, you know, remdesivir, you know, the statistics of improvement on that are so small. I, it's not, you know, the only thing that really saves people, I think, is, you know, pumping them full of steroids. And, you know, the ramifications of doing that is, is you know, everyone knows you're not, you don't want to take steroids unless you have to. So the efficacy of lenzolimab uh, is what really makes this so blaringly obvious. I mean, there's little risk you know, uh, to, to taking it, number one. So I don't think it's very harmful. And that's why you're talking about looking at it as a bolt-on to, to other drugs, you know, down the road, especially with CAR-T. Um, it's a fairly safe drug to take. So the mono, this particular monoclonal antibody looks real safe. And nothing, there's nothing for once you really get sick other than to pump somebody full of steroids. So it's just a no-brainer. Um, you know, the, the BARDA contract looks to me like, you know, that, that's always been, you know, what we have talked about, that they get the EUA, you instantly get that, and that's when it's going to friggin' explode. That's also to, um, you know, a lot of rumor is that the company is made for a buyout. It, it doesn't have tons of employees. You know, they are a small company. Um, you know, I don't even know if they use their office in California. Um, you know, all these guys are in different places around the world. Um, you know, it's it's a pretty shallow company in terms of employees. It looks like a buyout target. And when you had, you know, Gilead doing research with CAR-T, um, you know, and paying for the trial, keep in mind, now it was slow rolled and that, that trial took forever, the, the CAR-T therapy, um, you know, um, trial. Um, but it, I think it only ended up testing like six people, which phase one trial, I mean, that's not completely abnormal, but I think we could have kicked that into a little higher gear, gear considering, you know, CAR-T is, is so, you know, predominant in, 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 you know, chatter when it comes to cancer therapy. Um, and the number of drugs being approved for CAR-T are really starting to grow. So you have three main players with approved drugs in CAR-T. So when that Gilead trial came out and it said it was, you know, I think it said it was 100% effective, like the three patients that got it versus the three patients on the placebo, you know, it hit its end point. So you have a 100% effective trial. Um, so when Gilead, who paid for that study, you know, when they released that news, um, managing quickly said, great you know, discontinue this trial as Gilead was going to play, pay for the phase two trial. Well, <clears throat> they did that to open up testing, you know, with all the other companies. And you're talking about, Gilead's a big company, but you're talking about companies like Bristol-Myers Squibb, and I can't think of who the other one is, but Gilead's the smallest player in the CAR-T market. So, you know, there's there's just so much implications. You know, we're always in my private group, we're trying to figure out who might buy Humanogen out. And that's always the discussion and, and trying to find, you know, who has that connection. 
Mm. So okay. if people go back on the uh, humanogen chart, they might be interested mm-hmm. to see that there was a Moas uh, <laughs> a while ago, and that there was another individual that saw the uh, advantages of the drug back then when uh, he bought up. I think it was priced at like four million or something back then, or the market cap was what like eight million, and then Shkreli came along, bought mm-hmm. up something like seventy percent of the float, and jacked yes. the price up. <clears throat> yeah, the Shkreli story is is very interesting because you can look at Shkreli two different ways. He's a scumbag that tried to run up prices. He's in jail. Other people would say Shkreli's a genius because you know if he wouldn't have got so carried away with running up the price of uh, generic drugs or drugs that have been around for years, he would have gotten away with what he's doing. And it's not uncommon, you know, in the biotech sector to to do these. The problem was he jacked things up astronomically, and you know it was ridiculous. So if he would have been, I think initially, if you looked at CNBC, the coverage on him before he went to jail. You know, are you kidding me? They love they love a guy like Skrilli. He's the greatest. You know, look at how smart this kid was. But of course, when he went to jail, then he was a scumbag. And I'm not going to you know argue that either way. The stain that he left on the company has been you know irreversible, and it, it's hurt it's hurt the company for a number of years. And yes, the Moas was unlike no other. Um, almost, it was probably a one or two dollar stock, and it squeezed all the way to seventy. And it's always been very thin. It's still thinly traded to this day. He somehow cornered the market. I'm sure he knew exactly what he was doing. You know, he took control of shares. And then he had the brokers call the shares in because it had a high short interest at that time. So the the way he really caused the squeeze was was by just fucking over everyone who had borrowed his shares. Because when he, like he had something like 30, 40% control or some some very large amount, maybe higher than that, but he called those shares in and that's what basically caused the squeeze. So yeah, you've already had round one of the MOAS. Um, and, and then obviously he was only associated with the company for like something ridiculous, three weeks before he got thrown in jail. So then the new management company with Cameron Durant and um, I don't know when um, uh, Dave Chappelle, uh, uh, not Dave, um, but Dave Chappelle. Chappelle. Yeah, I, was <laughs> yeah, a, I think yeah. that's wrong. Yeah, it's, it's Chappelle. Yeah. Dale uh, Chappelle. But uh, the chief scientific uh, officer came in. They came in at that time because, I, look, the reality is I think they had a good drug. You know, I, uh, Scarelli saw it. Um, Cameron Durant, who has a very impressive background, the guys worked at uh, Merck. He's worked at Johnson and Johnson, uh, among many, you know, pretty big names. And and then I think when he kind of ventured out on his own into some smaller, you know, type companies, uh, he's had success with those too. So they saw something. Um, Scarelli saw something. I, I think that's what I take from that as far as the positive side. But for the longest time last year, every piece of news that came out when it was positive was Scarelli's old company, you know, Pharma Bro this, Pharma Bro that. And it was like, that has, that's a five-year-old story and they're still running with it. And we kind of always thought as a shareholder, you know, man, the media is so against this company. And, and they really, they really were, they couldn't put out anything. And we're just now past that. 
it's it's finally stopped. You don't hear anything again anymore about mm. about um, you know the Farmer Bros Company. You really don't. It's kind of finally stopped, and it's amazing. So that might be you know that that could turn the tables here. Yeah. There's, there, I've, so a couple of weird similarities that I've noticed with it was one that was mm -hmm. a essentially what I was getting at was that there's a lot of fud being put out by the media um, mm -hmm. when I was looking into it that just didn't seem super substantial, kind of like similar to GameStop. And then I saw mm -hmm. on the 13F, and I might have read it wrong, but from what I saw, Citadel had like a pretty sizable number of puts against it. Um, people might remember Citadel bailing out Melvin, uh, the mm -hmm. famous short against GameStop. But also the short interest of the stock seems like unreasonably high, like 40% yes. of the float or something. Do you think that there's much manipulation going on there? Well, I, I think, you know, what you're looking at with, with Humanogen is not really for the mother of all short squeezes to happen. Um, that situation, you know, is very unique with GameStop. I think you can have a massive squeeze, however, happen. Um, I wasn't looking at it as a, as a big short squeeze situation, but the, the actually there's a lot of jokes around that someone's following me and, and wants to make sure, you know, that they stick it to me after us, you know, we, we won on GameStop. That's kind <laughs> of the, the joke. Uh, no, that people, people have said that many times, like, you know, you, you better lay low for a while, Mike, but, yeah. um, you know, the squeeze would be unbelievable. Some, someone's building a position here against the company. And I, I really, I don't know why you're really on the verge of the EUA happening. Um, I don't know what on earth. Now, the, the big theory that, that we have is that, and, and I don't know how much truth there can be to this, but, you know, let's say a large company was looking at, at buying Humanogen out. Um, you know, if they can suppress the stock somehow, which uh, not to put anything, you know, harmful against any uh, broker out there, but the only brokerage that seems to want to poo-poo uh, Humanogen's potential is J.P. Morgan. Um, J.P. Morgan has a $21 price target on it, even though in their notes it says something along the lines that, um, you know, they believe that they'll actually get an EUA. So how you can have such a low price target on it, I don't know. All the other price targets from all the analysts are well above 30. Some are even in the 40s now. They continue to reiterate um, uh, you know, there was just a new uh, analyst who jumped on board, I think, last week with Offenheimer, um, and they were very bullish. They put out a 50-page, you know, write-up on it, and I, I read most of it, and it's it, to me, looks extremely bullish, and probably the only reason why the target's 30 is just because the stock's trading, you know, at 17. So you don't mm. put, you know, a $50 price target on something when it's 17. It looks ridiculous. So, um, but my point is, I, I, I don't know if there's someone that, you know, is, is behind the scenes that, that wants that, that lower price target so that, you know, maybe when they get an EUA, maybe, maybe there's an offer on the table that says, you know, we'll give you three to four times where your, your stock price is at that time um, or, or something along those lines. And they know that if they, you know, maybe they pay a few million now, it might save them a billion dollars on the end. That's the only thing that makes sense to me because I don't know who in their right mind is shorting this stock into a probably pretty clear EUA. And even if the FDA does find a way to sit on it, I don't see how Europe or, you know, maybe India or Brazil, I mean, there is, there's no treatment for severe COVID. I don't mm. know why you want to sit on this. It, it's shown that it's, it's safe. It's shown that it's effective. Uh, you know, it's working on top of, you can take it in combination with remdesivir with steroids and there's no harmful side effects. Why is this not approved for an EUA? This is what an EUA is for. You know, we can mm -hmm. find out down the road if it's more dangerous or, or whatnot, but this is exactly what an EUA is for. 
And, Sorry. you know, remdesivir probably wouldn't have been approved had remdesivir been going through what it, you know, the trials as they are now. Remdesivir got approved, you know, a year ago when we didn't even know what the hell was going on. So, you know, it's puzzling to me that, uh, that someone is willing to sit on this when it looks pretty obvious to a lot of people other than a few select, you know, brokers or a certain guy on stat you know, who wants to always come out and be negative about it. It's like, you know, most people don't see it that way. So we'll see who's right in the end. Um, you know, I remember that situation with GameStop and, oh, you know, it's brick and mortar. It's going to die. What are you wasting your time for? And I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah tell me more. Yeah. And I got the last laugh there. And with Humanogen, man, I, God, I feel, I feel really good about it. Like I said, biotech's not my specialty, so it's, it's trickier. But from what I read, um, that big article, uh, that big uh, study that came out of uh, England about three weeks ago, it showed GMCSF as the main target for deaths, you know, with basically causing death and COVID was huge. And, and the rest of the world, world ran with that GMCSF, um, you know, anti-GMCSF is what causes the inflammation and all these other cytokines, which are being focused on and tested by the FDA, you know, they've all failed. Every single one of these that have not focused on GMCSF have completely failed. IL-6 and all this huge other list. And I can't, you know, again, I'm, it's not my specialty, but you've seen everything else fail. And the way that the CEO of Humanogen describes it as they are upstream, they're not treating COVID, they're treating the inflammation that's caused by COVID, and they kind of shut a valve off upstream that keeps all these other cytokines from you know, igniting that causes the problems in the lungs. And everything that we've seen lately that has come out uh, in studies is showing that it's in the lungs, it's inflammation, and microphages, which is what GMCSF is, a microphage, is what's causing it. So I, I, don't, I don't know where the disconnect is here. And, you know, I think part of it is it's caught up in, oh, COVID's going away, this nonsense. And, you know, those type of stocks are selling off. That's fine. Uh, I mean, when it gets an EUA, I'm curious to see what happens. They're going to sell it off. I mean, it's going to get a you know a huge BARDA contract. So I mean, that's and that's just the start because that opens the door for CAR T and GBHD and all the other implications that I think are going to just you know really take off once you get an EUA. So yeah, um, I I mean, for what it's worth, I'm also incredibly bullish on this. <laughs> um, and like yeah. as you say as well, I think there's uh, a mind-boggling amount of potential for um, for lizilimab to help in places like India and now Brazil is um, dealing with a, an increasingly savage um, resurgence of COVID as well. Um, but just from, uh, sorry, outside of just a financial perspective, I just genuinely hope that this drug can get over the line and help some people, you know, if, if it can even help 10% of the people who are suffering in in places like India right now, I think it would just be so good. I, while I was conducting my research uh, the other day, I, you know, came across the photos of these um, the bodies being disposed of in India in car parks right now, and I literally felt sick to my stomach. And I just, I really hope that um, that this drug can help, um, and I I hope that some people can win along the way. I think uh, I think it's going to be be a nice one. No, it really should. And I mean, like I said, I think part of the idea that it's, you know, in COVID's in decline in the United States or maybe, you know, Australia's not being ravaged right now or, or whatever, 
you know, I, I don't think it's really going away. And, you know, the amount of people that are still dying from it, whether it's in, you know, an area like India, which is just being ravaged, or, you know, the stillian numbers in the United States are crazy high. Um, you know, the idea that everyone in the world is going to receive a vaccine and that somehow it's just going to make it completely disappear is is an interesting, you know, ideal and concept. And, you know, with the United States in particular, you know, we have something like 30 or 40 percent uh, of the population, you know, vaccinated and they're hoping to get to 60. Well, I think what people don't realize is I go to, you know, my store um, just today and you see people walking out without a mask is the vaccines don't necessarily mean you don't get COVID. Um, it just means you don't suffer from COVID, you know, the severity for yourself. And I just got vaccinated the other day. Um, doesn't mean you can't spread it to the dumbasses that aren't getting, you know, vaccinated. And I, I don't want to say mm -hmm. dumbasses because I was hesitant myself, um, you know, to get a vaccine. Mm -hmm. But I think what people don't realize is a vaccine doesn't mean you're, you know, you're free and you're cured. It just means the severity to which you would get it if you do get it is probably, you know, very minuscule and that you could still spread it real easy. And, you know, mm -hmm. people with kids and things like that, you know, they're walking around like it's a get out of jail free card. You know, it's a very dangerous plan of attack here. And that's what the U.S. is really pushing this. Everyone get vaccinated and we'll be safe. So um, I, I just, you know, I hate to I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist kind of guy. I don't know if we've got the right approach here in, in handling this. I don't know what the right approach is, but I do know that, you know, almost probably 50% of the U.S. is going to be hesitant to, to get vaccinated. You know, I don't, I don't think we're out of the woods yet here. And I, I don't know what the, the slow roll of, um, you know, the United States with the FDA uh, and the NIH trial that's going on that looks like it's doing unbelievably well. And it looks like to me they're getting ready to increase it. Um, you know, why, why is that moving so slow? Let's, let's speed it up and let's try to keep those people from dying. Um, you know, if this works, cause there's nothing else out there that seems to be stepping to the plate. So it's not just that I'm invested in it. You know, like you said, it looks like it's going to work and it's why I continue to keep buying more at a stupid level. Um, because all signs to me point that this is going to work and why it's kind of being slow rolled and why the stock's suppressed. I have no idea, but, you know, we'll see how it turns out in the end. Like I said, I, you know, I thought GameStop, you know, should have been a hundred bucks when it was 10. So, you know, it's like eventually the market figures these things out. Um, and I, I'm just waiting for it to figure, you know, figure this out. Yeah. I can sense the, uh, there's that, um, frustration that a lot of people aren't catching on, but I guess it's the classic thing with retail is they sort of, uh, there's a large bulk of people that are more reactive. So you need the catalyst or whatever. I've had a lot of people come up and be like, what's the next GameStop, man? Or whatever, you know, <laughs> like, well, Absolutely. I'm looking at this thing called HGen, but nobody wants to hear it. They're like, well, what about Tesla? No, they don't. They don't. <laughs> I, when the prime example is me telling people to buy GameStop, yeah. you know, a long time ago. And, uh, yeah. you know, no one wanted to, uh, no one wanted to listen. They're like, are you kidding? I mean, people knew what GameStop was too. This is a much easier concept than Humanogen. I mean, people really knew and understood like GameStop, I've been there. That place is a hole. And, you know, the amount of negativity that was with GameStop until all of a sudden it starts moving. And and what I always say is that sentiment is is bigger than anything. And whoever is, you know, kind of suppressing Humanogen here, it's kind of the same tactics that were being used, you know, with with GameStop that any any kind of, 
you know, push up was always met with this huge resistance and it really chills out and, and kills retail buying pressure. So, um, you know, and we saw that over and over with GameStop and even even at the end and even now, um, you know, any spike in GameStop is quickly met with, uh, you know, smash it right back down. Because, you know, I don't really think that it is, um, you know, retail that really moves the market. But when retail does act, it does move the market. So, um, you know, it's a matter of forcing, you know, whoever is manipulating, it's a matter of forcing their hand. So, mm. you know, I, I'm waiting to see that happen. And it kind of started to happen when they released the phase three data. I mean, the phase three data was excellent yeah. last month. We spiked up to $30 and you saw like the strong arm of the law come in and, and immediately take it all the way back down. And it's like, you know, that, that, that's the tactic that they used on GameStop when it initially spiked to like 160 and then they drove it all the way down to 40 and you had, you had people that were so negative on, on CNBC and they were like doing victory laps. Like I told you it wasn't going to stay up there. And then what happened from 40, it went to 400. Um, you know, it's just, it's just weird how the market works and how sentiment works and how people don't want to buy something when it's down. They never want to buy anything when it's down. They, you know, the, the story is so much interesting, you know, like at $30 on Humanogen, I could probably get all kinds of people to buy it. You know, I, I'm always telling people <laughs> under 20, you want to buy it under 20. Cause that's, you know, I, I think it's golden under 20. Mm-hmm. So, but sentiment, whoever's sitting on it. Yeah. Anytime it has that big move, man, they, they bring it back down real fast. Yep. So I'm well, um, going to be getting some more options after this conversation. Are you are you timing <laughs> this thing? Are you looking at like options versus shares? Are you just going full on? Uh, you know, my situation's so different now. So it's, it's you know, I, I do have options. Actually, I bought a lot of options in January and February and I, I bought mainly in May. So I have a whole bunch of options that look like they're going to completely get crushed. And really, um, my theory right now is... April and May had an astronomical amount of open interest in, in the options. So like right now you can look at the 25s and the 30s and there's something like 8,000 open interest in in the in those strikes. I mean you're talking about millions of shares and you're talking about millions of dollars being tied up in these open interests. So I think whoever is playing games with the stock and wants to hold it back I have a feeling they're really keyed in, you know, as to who had sold those options. And with GameStop, you know, what really happened, I don't believe it was the short interest. I believe it was the maniacs that were selling calls against, um, you know, the stock as well, too, because that's what made GameStop work so well for me was they were selling those call options so cheap. And it is like, you know, they planned on it never moving like they knew. And that's why they screwed me over, you know, for almost a year on those because they were selling them for like, you know, pennies and they were mispriced. And Humanogen doesn't have mispriced options. I mean, they're they're they're, they're priced right. They also don't have weekly options. So there's not really the, the interest in them. However, that being said, there was a, a lot of, of movement in the options going into that phase three data. And about a week before that phase three data came out, the uh, the, uh, the premium in those options got destroyed. And um, it was a real weird phenomenon because I, I watched them real close and obviously I've had them. Uh, I have a lot of maze, like I said, and I, I think they're going to expire probably completely worthless. And, uh, you know, that's 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 options for you. They, they screw you over. But whoever's playing the game, I have a feeling is very short 
you know, the stock through those options. And maybe, just maybe, once we get past May, because they made a fortune in April, it was almost the same amount of open interest, and they, they sold those, believe me, back in probably February and maybe March, that, that heavy open interest, because uh, the options in Humanogen have only been trading since like last, um, you know, November or whatever. They haven't been trading very long, so there's not huge open interest, but it's really built up in May, and I'm praying that if we can at least, uh, don't want my options to expire worthless, I think they might, but once we get past May expiration, all of a sudden that weight that's sitting on there might get the hell out of the way because <clears throat> that might be their last hurrah making you know a big amount of money on selling those calls. And then maybe if they get off of it, that stock will move so easily. There's really nothing there. The floats something like 30 million. I mean, that stock will go in two seconds. It should have gone, you know, you saw how fast it went to 30. You know, if they wouldn't have stepped in and squashed it back down and killed the sentiment in it. And then you have guys, you know, like I said, that stat guy comes out and makes up some total nonsense. You know, I hate to believe in conspiracy theories. Is that the massive orchestrated Herbert, bullshit. I don't even want to say right. Herpy's name, but yeah, I mean, comes out, <laughs> na- it comes out just completely wrong on the stock. His yeah. whole thesis was just wrong. And when they put out the, you know, the study last week, you know, the, the argument was ITT population versus MITT population. Something I'd never heard of in my life. And I, I looked it up after he put that in, after he wrote that. And I'm like, so basically the MITT population is leaving out people that didn't end up fully participating in the study. That's all that is. So you had like 30, 40 people that probably were in Brazil, which is a nightmare, where maybe they didn't get you know their all their doses or maybe they didn't show up for the study or whatever nonsense there is. It was a really weak argument. And they, he kind of tried to make the case that it was, you know, the, the, the data was being manipulated because they used the, I, the MITT instead of the ITT. Well, what happened? The, the new study came out from everyone in the Mayo Clinic who wrote it, Dr. Badley, who is about as pristine of a guy as there can be. Uh, his name is on that paper. And it said that the ITT data was even better than the MITT data. It's like, okay, so that whole thesis that came out of STAT is completely wrong. And that's the only thing that stopped us on that day when we were going to 30. So I've been hitting that guy up, you know, every day since then <laughs> saying, hey, when are you going to fix that? You know, when are you going to make that correction? Because it's nonsense. And I don't think he's part of any, I hope he's not part of anything, you know, keyed in with something. But all I know is we've got a, one negative, you know, analyst. We've got the stat guy being negative. I don't know. To me, it looks like a, a, a David and Goliath story a great comeback and man if they get that EUA that's the way it's going to be portrayed in the media i mean that is an unbelievable story and they're going to put that ceo all over the place because he's going to look like a goddamn genius for navigating. I mean, him and, and uh, Chappelle, they're going to look like geniuses because no one else. I mean, you're talking Merck, you're talking big companies that, you know, their ship sunk in this concerning therapeutics. I mean, here's this little tiny company, the Pharma Bros owed company that made it through yeah. here and made it work. I mean, if, if they get an EUA, that should be, it should be celebrated. So, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure it will be celebrated. Um, you know, I, I, I hope so. <laughs> All right. Um, this has been a really good chat. Uh, we're getting on uh, onwards to an hour 20 now, though. So we should probably pause um, and wind down. Um, mm-hmm. For our listeners who want to follow Mike's analysis and commentary or just our presence in general, We'll uh, link to his Twitter profile and 
maybe your stock twits mike in the show sure. notes would that be the other best place for people to follow you do you think yeah i'd say so i think everything's linked to uh investors uh, i'm sorry uh, twitter so most everything okay, I post, cool. we'll do twitter the, then the twitter is you know the easiest one and, and just so everyone right. knows i am not a financial analyst um just a, an no, idiot no, beach bum not. that you know happened to got lucky one time so don't take my words as investment advice <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we've um we've also got some um HGN DD that we're compiling um that we'll link in the show notes as well for anyone who's interested. Cool. Mike, I was going to actually send that your way and um get some feedback on that and see if there was anything you think that is worthwhile adding um to that sure. that we could quickly edit in. Um mm-hmm. but Anyway, we'll, um, we'll bring it to a close. Thank you again for joining us. Um, to our listeners, thanks for subscribing, following us. It's amazing. We appreciate you. Um, if you want to follow us on social media, please get at us on at Modern Guilt Pod. Um, Twitter is guilt underscore modern. Uh, other than that, take care. Share the pod. Love your friends and family. Trade some dank stocks. Make some games. Keith Gill. (laughs) All right. (laughs) See you guys. Thank you. All right.